Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, Class 17 of our genre review, um, and this is the third part of the Arya Parya Sama Sutta. Um, let me get into it, then I'll, I'll comment. Remember, we left, we left the Buddha, where were you? Um, where he had resolved the issues in his own mind about should he even bother teaching his Dhamma, because he understood that it's very difficult to see, it's very difficult to understand it for many people. But then he wrestled with this for a couple of weeks and he finally came to the conclusion that even if there was just a few people with a speck of dust in their eyes, meaning they, they had enough wherewithal and understanding that those would be people that were fit to teach, that had the Buddhist words, that had ears to hear and eyes to see. Okay, so he resolved all that and the Buddha says, then the thought occurred to me, who should I first teach the Dhamma to? Who will quickly understand? I thought of Alara Kalama, one of his teachers. Remember, he practiced his teaching, developed it to its culmination, and realized that this wasn't for him. He was looking for something different, rather than um, a magical, mystical experience, right? In the realm of nothingness, or the realm of... Um, Perception or not. Yeah, perception or not. I couldn't perceive it. Uh, and so I thought of Alar Kalama, wise, intelligent, competent, but I heard that he had passed a week ago. I thought, what a great loss it was to my friend Alar. He would have quickly learned my Dhamma. Then I thought of Udaka Ramaputta, another one of the Buddhist teachers. He too was wise, intelligent, competent, but I heard that he had passed just last night. It was a great loss to my friend Udaka as well. He too would have quickly learned my Dhamma. So notice that just because the Buddha um, spent a good deal of time learning from Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, realizing that that wasn't what he was looking for, he didn't have resentment or think that he should exclude people that didn't already agree with him from his life. And again, the reason why I'm saying that today is we've become very polarized, that people don't go along with my way of thinking Okay, it's wrong. I'm not going to go there. Uh, again, I then thought of the five friends I wandered with while teaching, teaching, while attending to ascetic practices. I knew they were in the deer park at Isipatana. I took my, my leave to wander in stages to Isipatana. Along the way, I encountered Upaka, the Ajiva, the Ajiva, Ajiva, Ajiva <laughs> He noticed my comp my composure, my complexion bright. He inquired, well, this is so interesting, on whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? In whose Dhamma do you delight? Again, every, there was a million different, like today, there's a million different variants on Buddhism. I told Upaka, I have left the world behind through my own understanding. He, he's saying, I'm not entangled in the world anymore. I'm not looking in the world for my answers or for my fulfillment. He's left the world behind through his own understanding. 
I am released from wrong views, from all phenomena. Empty of ignorance, I am free of craving. My realization is taught by none. To whom should I declare as my teacher? I have no teacher as one like me cannot be found. The Buddha is not um, raising himself up above other people. He's just saying nobody understands this yet. I have no counterpart, for I am an arahant, an awakened, fully mature human being in the world. I am the unexcelled teacher, rightly self-awakened. So the qualification to be an unexcelled teacher is to be rightly self-awakened, which is what we're doing, right? We're becoming rightly self-awakened, not as a consequence of something being bestowed on us or granted us because we spend enough money or spend enough time or whatever. We do it ourselves. Did you have any questions? Just a, what was the word, an unexcelled teacher? I just didn't Yes. Crap. Am I reading too fast? No, I just unexcelled. I don't know. Are you sure? <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> we used to have a Sangha member. She, gets, so she threw a shoe at me one time. But, <laughs> remember, Lauren? Uh-huh. I am the unexcelled <clears throat> teacher, rightly self-awakened. The fires of passion are cooled. I am unbound. I will set the wheel of the true Dhamma rolling. I am traveling to Kasi. In a world afflicted with the darkness of ignorance, I beat the drum of wisdom. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? He understood his place in the world now. Upaka replied, from what you from what you claim, you must be the ultimate conqueror. Upaka is laughing at him. That can't be good. Conquerors like me have abandoned greed, aversion, and delusion. I have conquered all evil qualities. You are correct, Upaka. I am a conqueror. Upaka, unconvinced, shaking his head, took his leave. He just didn't believe him. Again, an example of someone with too much dust in their eyes, right? Wasn't ready. Whatever it is that inclines us to be here this morning, Upaka didn't have it. The Buddha continued. I continued to the deer park. From afar, my five friends saw me. I was no longer gaunt from ascetic self-denial. Thinking that I was living luxuriously, they decided to not show me to show me respect. Of course, the Buddha was at that time was fine, was living on food again, just one bowl a day, but it was enough to nourish him back in health, where he almost died from a lack of nourishment before this. As I approached, they noticed my awakened state. Standing now in respect, they took my robe and bowl and prepared a seat. One of my friends took a bowl and began to wash my feet. They, however, addressed me by my familiar name. Friends, do not address the the Tathagata, a rightly self-awakened one, in this way. I am am rightly self-awakened, a worthy one. Listen carefully, my friends. I have realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding, unbinding from all views ignorant of four noble truths. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you, and shortly you will also realize the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. So the Buddha's Dhamma was not meant to be um, experienced over lifetime after over lifetime over lifetime. It's right here, right now. That's what he's saying. In this lifetime, we awaken. Because it's the only lifetime that we have. If we're going to do it, we've got to do it now. The group of five replied, from your practice of the austerities, 
you did not attain any superior state or any higher knowledge or wisdom worthy of a noble one. So most seekers in that time fell into the cult of asceticism. Even the Buddha did. And remember, it almost killed him. And he realized that the words he would use was that's painful, it's ignoble. It's not something we should worship. How can you now, living luxuriously, he was living on one bowl of food and he had a couple of robes, straying from your exertion and backsliding into abundance, again, characterizing living an abundant life, not necessarily with things, but being fully present. They're not getting it yet. Your backsliding into abundance have attained any superior state or any higher knowledge or vision worthy of a noble one. The Buddha replied, the Tathagata, referring to himself, is not living luxuriously or strayed from his exertion or backslid into, into abundance. The Tathagata is a worthy one, rightly self-awakened, again, reaffirming that. Listen carefully. I have realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you, and shortly you will realize the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke. The unbinding for yourselves right here and now. A second and third time they doubted me and questioned me in the same manner. I then asked them, have I ever denied to be, ever claimed to be a rightly self-awakened one before? They replied, you have never before claimed to be a rightly self-awakened one. Buddha says, I replied again, the Tathagata is not living luxuriously or strayed from his exertion, or backslid into abundance. The Tathagata is a worthy one, rightly self-awakened. Listen carefully. I have realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you, and shortly you will also realize the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding, for yourselves, right here and now. And so I convinced them of my knowledge and wisdom. Over time, living on alms, I instructed the group of five. Being subject themselves to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, to regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, aversion, to delusion, you know, all of that rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And now understanding the suffering of birth, this, again, as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be pain and suffering. It's, just, it's, it's baked in. You'll understand the suffering of birth, of sickness, of aging, of death, of sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, of greed and, and of aversion and of delusion. One by one, we'll recognize this. We won't take any of these things personally. They attain the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. This, this, this next is my uh, comments here. It must be remembered that this sutta is not meant to be a complete historical account of the Buddha's six years of, of searching for understanding. It is meant to describe the difference between a noble search and an ignoble search. As such, the entire Dhammachakapavatana Sutta is not recounted. Dhammachakapavatana Sutta is, is the first sutta they ever gave, and it was on the Four Noble Truths. And, and if you've heard it before, you remember that at the end of that short uh, lesson, Kandana 
said all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. And the Buddha says, yep, you are now Anakandana, the one who understands. So Kandana understood at the most basic level, most profound level, that everything is impermanent. So why take anything personal? What is presented here can see it can be seen as a summary of the Dhammajaka Pavatana Sutta. The Buddha's words, friends, craving and clinging arises from the five senses, forms known from the eye, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, and linked to sensual desire. Sounds known from the ear, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, and are linked to sensual desire. Aromas known from the nose, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, and enchanting, and linked to sensual desire. Again, this is a recounting of how we use our senses to continue ignorance by instilling that sensual desire. Buddha continues, taste known from the tongue, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, are linked to sensual desire. Tactile sensations known from the body, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, are linked to sensual desire. This is the craving and clinging that arises from the five senses. Any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who clings to sensuality in this manner, infatuated and enchanted with sensuality, without understanding the suffering that follows, excuse me, or the path to cessation, should be known as unfortunate and having met ruin. They have lost their minds and the world will have its way with them, like it does with all of us. You know, again, the doctors in the last 30 or 40 years have realized that stress or dukkha is one of the major causes of disease. And the Buddha is saying, understand that. Don't inflict this disease on yourself by your own ignorance. They have lost their minds and the world will have its way with them. It is as if a wild deer were caught in a, in a heap of snares. This deer has met misfortune and ruin. A hunter could do with it what they want. Again, we get entangled in the world like this deer in the snares. In the same manner, any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who clings to sensuality in this manner, infatuated and enchanted with sensuality, without understanding the suffering that follows or the path to cessation, should be known as unfortunate and have, having met ruin. They have lost their minds and the world will have their way with them. Now, know this, friends. Any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who no longer clings to sensuality in this manner, not infatuated or enchanted with sensuality, right? enchanted it, uh, enchanted would be we've done this to ourselves. We have such this a um, a fabricated ideology that we're enchanted with all the stuff in the world, and everything has everything is is something to grasp after. But the Buddha is saying, don't go there. It's all rooted in sensuality, something that's constantly distracting. In this manner, not infatuated or enchanted with sensuality. Understanding the suffering that follows and the path to cessation should be known as fortunate and will not meet ruin. That's us, folks. They have control of their minds and the world will not have its way with them. Um, without getting into a discussion, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, 
Has anybody realized this, that the world doesn't have its way with you as much as it used to? Yeah. Anybody? I mean, who's shaking her? I can't see. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that marvelous? That we found a way to extricate ourselves from the world that's gentle, it's peaceful, and in the end, I don't get in trouble when I say this, it's easy. All we have to do is do it. They have controlled their minds and the world will not have its way with them. It is as if a wild deer avoided a hunter's snares. The deer has not met, met misfortune and has avoided ruin. A hunter could not do with them what they will. In the same manner, any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who does not cling to sensuality in this manner is not infatuated or enchanted with sensuality, who understands the suffering that follows and the path to cessation should be known as fortunate and will not meet their ruin. They have control of the minds and the world will not have its way with them. Again, the Buddha recounting how important that is to have control of your mind, rooted in jhana. It is as if a wild deer living carefree, carefree in all ways. Why is it carefree? Because it has gone beyond the hunter's range. Everybody getting the metaphor? It's wonderful. It's marvelous. In the same way, those engaged in the noble search, established in seclusion from sensuality and unskillful mental qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana. The first jhana is experienced as rapture. Rapture means joyful engagement in this sense. Born of that very seclusion, it is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So, Every time we begin to do jhana meditation, we're doing just this. We take joyful engagement that we've established seclusion from the world. That's the first step. We've, wherever our meditation space is, hopefully it's quiet. And here we just take a breath. And we should be joyfully engaged in our seclusion at that moment because we know what it's going to bring us. And that beginning stages of meditation is, is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Meaning we find that we're caught up in our thinking or our thoughts and we direct our thoughts back to our breath. That's what it means. And the reason why I'm saying that is, is many modern practices have taken that idea of directed thought and applied it in, in really ridiculous, this mystical and middle magical ways. They have become lost to Mara. Mara is always a, a metaphor for the, the pain of ignorance. Mara can't find you when you have control of your mind. And that's in the first genre. That's as, as we've been, as we establish seclusion and we take our first breath, first breath, and the second breath, and the third breath, that aspect of our mind that is, is uh, metaphorically Mara no longer has control of you by just one breath. It's the beginning of jhana practice. And it's, it's very important to understand this, that that we're meditating correctly or not, that we've established that first job. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search and to remain in the second jhana, second level of meditative absorption. This second jhana <clears throat> is experienced as rapture and pleasure, now born of concentration. We're realizing that our concentration is increasing, or at least we're doing a practice that will increase our concentration. We're so fortunate to have found this. Free of directed thought and evaluation, with the internal assurance, the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. 
they have become lost to Mara, lost to wrong views. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search enter and remain in the third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful. Equanimous just means a balanced state, a pleasant abiding. With the fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. They have become lost to Mara, lost to lost 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 the wrong views. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity. You know, the, the equanimity that's established in the third jhana is not yet pure. And we need to go a little bit deeper, but that's where practice takes us. The fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and now mindful. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They sit permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. They have become lost to Mara, lost to wrong views. And further still, those engaged in the noble search with complete abandonment of self-identification or self-reference, the form with the fading of aversion, with the cessation of craving, here and there, meaning everywhere, we're not craving for anything in this life or another life. They enter and remain in the dimension of infinite space. They have become lost to merit, lost to wrong views. Again, the Buddha is including this because this was common during the Buddhist time to, to strive for these uh, superhuman or out of, out of the world mind states. And further still, those engaged in normal silence with complete abandonment of the dimension of infinite space. So that's not something that we should be striving for. And it's not something that we need to look for in our meditation practice. First time I qualified this. Unless you've been engaged in a practice that is mostly mystical and magical, this might have more of an importance to you because you'd be able to recognize now that you have to extricate yourself from those fabricated views so that it's just pure and bright. Again, it was common during the Buddhist time and just as common today. They enter and remain in the dimension of infinite consciousness. They have become lost to Mara, lost to wrong views. And further still, those engaged in the noble search with complete abandonment of the dimension of consciousness, they enter and remain in the dimension of nothingness, going through all these fabricated states. Knowing there is nothing, they have become lost to Mara, lost to the effects of wrong views. And further still, those engaged in the noble search with complete abandonment of the dimension of nothingness, they enter and remain in the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. <clears throat> they have become lost to merit, lost to wrong views. And further still, those, enga those engaged in the noble search with complete abandonment of the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, they enter and remain in the cessation of perception and feeling. Free of, free of reaction, Knowledge and wisdom well established, greed, aversion, and delusion are completely overcome. They have become lost to Mara, lost to the effects of wrong view. Having engaged in the noble service, they are unattached to anything in the world, disentangled. They are as carefree as a deer removed from a hunter's range. Why are they as carefree as a deer far removed from a hunter's range? Because they have completed the noble search 
and through their own efforts, gone beyond Mara's reach, gone beyond the reach of ignorance. Those who have engaged in the noble search, who have completed the Eightfold Path, are said to be rightly self-awakened. That's the path we're engaged in. This is what the great teacher said. The group of five were delighted from hearing those words. That's today's rather long part three. Excuse me. So the Buddha very carefully teaches us these jhanas so that we can actually recognize that our practice is bearing fruit, that we're doing it correctly. And not just getting caught up in another um, magical, mystical, miraculous fantasy or rooted in something in salvation. The Buddha didn't care about any of that because he knew that that was not for human beings. In other words, he, he set out wanting to understand what is the nature of human suffering and what can he, can he understand and can he do something about it? And so he met Alara Kalama, Udekka Ramakuta, they weren't it. He continued his practice, continued meditating, using the same meditation he used when he was five years old. And eventually he awakened. And now he's saying we can all do it. And this is how you do it. This is how you can recognize that it's working. So I'd like to hear what you all say. I'll start online. Uh, Jeff, how are you? Well, John, thank you. Um, thanks for the teaching. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the word enchanted. Um, you know, that on, on some level, whether we practice some other discipline or no matter how we come to this, we all, in a sense, have been enchanted or actually have enchanted ourselves with conditioned thinking. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I look at that word and think chanting is the root of it. And chanting is a repetition that conditions yeah. a certain, elicits a certain response or state of mind. And uh, I'm just struck with how, for me, this process is almost appealing away of enchanted states of mind yeah um kind of a return to an original state in a sense where you then have the ability to see with right view what would have been otherwise enchanted yeah and we do it ourselves yeah we do it ourselves or it well, that and, and we do it, we unenchant ourselves. Yeah, well, we, we do all of it ourselves. We, yeah. we enchant ourselves. We, it's almost like, I think in the truth of happiness, it's like we're a magician playing a trick on ourselves, but we don't realize it. You know, just yeah. like we become enchanted. With right. Fantasy. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. Well, thank you for the teaching. Thank you, Jeff. Brian, how are you? I'm good. Uh, Similar to Jeff, and I think the Buddha often referred to the world as the the extent of the sixth sense base, right? And that's that's really what we're enchanted with is our senses and the phenomena coming into contact that creates these experiences that we, through ignorance, get wrapped up in and think is, think itself. Um, 
And so it's really this, this one, two punch of ignorance and craving that perpetuates this suffering and through, through understanding and practice and jhana of concentration, starting to see that feedback loop between the senses and uh, consciousness and back and forth. And you start to, to, to just point unenchant yourself with that process. Thank you for the teaching. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I mean, we you look look at the world. And if the Buddha said in the Loka Sutta, he looked out in the world, and the world was a flame. The flame was what? The fires of passion. And the the world is built for sensuality, isn't it? Right? It's not it's not built for any other thing. And, and it manifests um, in ever increasingly subtle ways, it seems to me. And that what I'm talking about now is um, the anti-social media and that it has infiltrated our um, really our psyche. And, and I'm not saying it's all bad, but we've become so distracted by these things that we can do instantly. Uh, everywhere I go, when I look out now, I never did it before, but everybody's looking at their phone, no matter what they're doing. It's always, always looking at this phone. Um, it's such an unhealthy way to live your life, isn't it? To always be striving for distraction and, and sensuality when we can develop a calm and peaceful mind by disentangling ourselves from the world. But that's a difficulty, isn't it? Because all of that is rooted in ignorance and it's part of the word ignorance to ignore whatever it is. You know, it's built in. So we're built in to ignore our own human existence and make it, make it something or make ourselves something other than what we can be, which is what I am right now. Right, Dr. Kevin? Correct, as usual, John. Um, <laughs> thank you for the teaching. And uh, um, just enjoying this. I really have nothing to add today. Technical silence. Glad you're here. Please say hi to Robin and the kids. I will. Cody, what do you think? Uh, I think that I would like to apologize again for being late. Just um, glad you're here. And uh, I'm glad I'm here too. Um, I'm just gonna just gonna listen and observe for today. But thank you, thank you for the teaching. Thank you. Does anybody mind being on camera? Here's Bridget. Good morning, John. Thank you for the teaching. And uh, I think hearing this teaching. I think for the second time, kind of similar to last week, just giving me an opportunity to evaluate the difference, uh, you know, in what I'm feeling and, you know, what I'm observing this time. And it definitely kind of is shining a light on a phenomenon that I've been like experiencing okay. where I'm in a familiar conversation or pattern, you know, with a friend or, you know, family member. And, uh, you know, a topic comes up and the other person is rightly expecting me to get really passionate. Yeah. Uh, because I would have. And uh, I, by nature, I'm a very like, passionate person. And um, I'm interested in a lot of things, you know, and those are good qualities, but, you know, I've been very unskillful with it. And, That's right. Uh, I'm just not triggered. And it's like to the point where 
I have to like kind of dig around in my mind and be like, oh yeah, that's right. This topic, you used to have all these opinions. You were a part of like this tribe and this is what you would say. And that person would get it from you and you would keep going. And like, and I'm just aware of that complete cessation of the, you know, of the passion for that. And it feels so good. <laughs> and then in that moment, I'm like, okay. And then, you know, I'm still kind of practicing how to like skillfully, you know, because this is a, a friend or a family member or, you know, somebody that I see regular coworker, or, you know, whatever. So I would be polite and, you know, maybe just talk about something else or, you know, quiet the, the moment or whatever. So I'm still working on that. I'm not quite sure I know how to, how to do it, but um yeah, that's where I'm at, and that's what I'm coming up with, and it feels great not to be enchanted with all of that yeah. uh, literally utter nonsense, <laughs> other than what you can skillfully achieve, you know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't, that, you know, do your civic duty, or, you know, you should vote if you if you feel compelled, that's fine, you know, yeah. maybe, or if you can help somebody, then yes, you should, you know, you should give, or be kind, have a boundless heart, but, um, you know saying your opinion over and over again loudly for everybody to hear doesn't really do anything. Um, so I'm enjoying that. Thank you. That was really uh, a lot of insight, Richard. They just had to do this. So good for you and thank you. Hello, Zach. Howdy. Thank you for the teaching. I, today I'm, I think I'm back in the question, questioning. Okay, we've now abandoned feeling of pleasure or non-pleasure or neither. Now what? Do you really want to know the answer to that? Keep practicing to find out. Hmm. I don't know if I'll let you get away with that. <laughs> what, 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 what's next? What's next? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't kidding when I said that. Continued practice. And those doubts will be, uh, when not, those doubts, one of the hindrances, right, will slip away. But where are we going? We're, we're going to be, rather than always be rooted in grasping after and clinging to a sensual experience, we become sensitive to pleasure without any eye making. So the same things, likely, a lot of the same things that you and Julia do together or apart are still going to be a part of your life. You just won't take a lot of it personally. But you will also um, abandon the things that promote um, sensuality in you. But it takes a little time. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the, the, we, we train, what does is, what is Jen always say? Train for calm. We train for calm. So really, not not to be uh, snide about it. That's, that's no, 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 and that's um, I, I, that's where I had expected you to to go, which is essentially you're you're not taking it personally. Mm -hmm. And I think both Julie and I have become quite adept at that. Um, so you know what's next. What's yeah. that? So you know what's next. Mm -hmm. So I do. Okay. Life is life occurs. Bridget just that's described what's next that you don't. Take the bait, you don't just engage because you feel the need to engage. You don't take it personal, so therefore there's common 
in that room at that moment. So that's what comes next. It's not this grand thing that happens when you don't feel anymore. Of course, you always feel. You just don't, you know, you don't have that conditioned response that you once did. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's where I get stuck is just sometimes in the, in the language. It, it seems as if, okay, now we don't have a feeling of pleasure or pain or neither said it during the uh, retreat you're sensitive to it right. and that's the difference to be sensitive to pleasure and pain that's you're not reactionary to those feelings so you know it's that's, that's a pure yourself, experience what's that leave me like this like shell of this thing that can't operate in the world that can't be passionate about my my career or my family no, it just means that you don't take it personal. So you, you experience suffering with that second arrow. And that's yeah. what this is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not experience pleasure. You just abandon that experience when it's occurring. And the more you practice abandonment, the more available you are to the present moment. The more open you are to whatever is happening available in the next moment that may or may not be pleasurable but you're not getting stuck in you know a minute ago 10 minutes ago 20 minutes ago an hour ago a day ago a week ago yeah, in the future and that yeah you're not getting stuck in the past or the or thinking about and then because you're stuck in the past thinking about how you're gonna get back to that past moment in the future. <clears throat> Just way too much. And asking the question, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, even because <clears throat> what next? Read that question assumes that right now is insufficient. The, the I think the best example um, of, of what's next is the Buddha's own awakening. Awakening. He awakened, gained full human maturity at the age of 35. And that's not the last we heard of him. For the last 40 years of his, 45 years of his life, he was doing something that inspired him, you know, that he loved to do, because what was that? He taught the Dhamma. That is what was next for him. Uh, Anathapandika, uh, a wealthy businessman, came across the Buddha, learned the Dhamma, and awakened. And he didn't give up his worldly pursuits. In fact, he continued in commerce and gave a lot of money to the Buddha. And Anatha Pandika is one of those actors um, that has allowed Buddhism to last this long, you know, because of his, his what he intended to do with it. But again, he, he didn't quit his business. He just didn't take it personally anymore. I, it, it is a little bit hard to imagine how can you take yourself out of everything until you actually do it. But no, it's a it's a it's a reminder today. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Pat. Hello, Raquel. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining the teaching. It's a great to be here with uh, all of you. It's, uh, Oh, we're so glad you're, you're a part of our song. <laughs> I think what uh, 
I, I understand that saying and, and glad that uh, you provide these answers. But one of the questions that I have, and I'm a beginner here, and you guys are all uh, way ahead, but you know, when you say don't commit to things and don't uh, uh, maybe just, I understand living in the present, which is very, you know, it's, it's a practice. Mm -hmm. But if you're not clinging uh, to anything, then how, how are you going to be, let's say if you have a career, you have to, to pursue the next and the next. So if you're not clinging, because you, unfortunately, you have bills to pay, you have to worry about this. So how, how do you get motivated still if you're not clinging, if you, if you have to let it go, all of this? How do you still, unless you go like Buddhism and well, go and search for something else? David, why don't you answer that? David is is uh, is still working every day, engaged in that, and he's he's yeah. what we all do. And don't forget the other part of this this practice is the understanding of the first and second noble truth. And the when you realize the third noble truth, then you can do whatever you want. It allows you to engage in anything you want to engage in. You simply don't take it personal. What that means is that you don't have to be in the middle of it all. So when it's time to bid a job, you bid the job based on the framework of the four noble truths. Yep. And Right speech doesn't occur just because I'm determined that I'm going to be right speech for now on. No, it's because you have an understanding of the four noble truths now. So come to class, come to these understandings about these four noble truths, and then you understand a simple thing like when John says you'll start seeing it in right speech. It's not because you've hunkered down and just decided I'm going to write speech. It's because you understand how else can you be. Yeah. It, there's no other way to live. If you want a calm and peaceful if mind. If you want a calm and peaceful mind. So even like, we practice for calm. Well, I practice for calm so I can have these insights to these three things. That there's impermanence, that this thing that I see is this this self is, is not self. And dukkha, understanding of dukkha. Once you've got that, John says it's easy. Well, it is, but you have to look at the entire practice. And so to take a question out, like what else is there? Or how can I go to my job tomorrow? Well, when you take it out of context like that, yeah, it is a daunting thing. What else is there, Dave Allen, if I'm not going to be the hammer that I was when I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s? Well, I just look at that nail differently and I still hammer on it, but I don't take it personal. Thank you. Did that help answer your question? Yeah, I know. A little bit? A lot too. <laughs> it would be wonderful if you learned all of this when you are a kid, right? Because yeah. I, I know that uh, now we're teaching lots of kids like meditation and, uh, at the early age and that other countries. Not very, it's not well practiced in here. 
But because at a very early age, I, I was very inquisitive, asking these questions that I came back with answering. I, I just came across, uh, my husband said, oh, you have this book here, Siddhartha. I said, oh, I have that book. Oh, I, mean, I didn't even know that Siddhartha was good until I started interviewing him. That's of my ignorance, of course. But, um, yeah. You do know that book is a novel, though. I'm sorry? That book is a novel. It's not a true accounting of Siddhartha's life. Yeah, but I didn't even know that Siddhartha was Buddha at the and he never calls himself Buddha. In fact, I don't. I don't consider myself a Buddhist. Practice the Dhamma. Nothing special about that. Um, the, the experiential aspect, come and see for yourself, is again something that Buddha emphasized over and over again because he knew that if you if you get caught up in any or all of the hindrances, including doubt, um, you can lose your way. And he taught us to recognize that. And with conviction, we continue with practice because we understand that you know, we're all just ordinary human beings. Here. There's nothing special about us. And there's certainly nothing special about me. And so I, you know, I believe this my whole life. If, any, if I can do anything, something, anybody else can do it. There's nothing special. You know, I don't have any special powers of insight or anything. It's just practice that have made me so brilliant and handsome, too. <laughs> <laughs> so be gentle with yourself, Raquel, and keep doing just what you're doing. And you'll, you'll understand this at an ever more uh, subtle level. I got a question from one of my students online. Uh, he wasn't really dabbling around. Uh, and he wanted to know why the Buddha, it's almost like a demand in his voice. Why did the Buddha keep meditating after he awakened? He's seeing meditation as a tool, rather than, a tool for escape, rather than just developing concentration. And of course, the answer is, why wouldn't he continue to do jhana every day and live within the framework of the Eightfold Path? That's what he did. And that's what we're developing. You know, we're, we're going from a wrong view of life, taking everything personal, you know, all the, all the things that can go along with that, anxiety, depression drug addiction, you know, other kinds of addiction, just to escape that. And as Buddha saw the same, that Siddhartha saw the same thing during his time. We went out for six years trying to figure out what, what is this all about? Where, why is there so much suffering? What can I do about it? How can I understand it? And that's what he awakened to. That there is there are stressors in the world as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be dukkha. But we don't have to stick the second arrow. We don't have to react to it. Just recognize it. So getting back to what Zach said, um, just because we awaken doesn't mean and we stop clinging to sickness, aging, and death doesn't mean that we've overcome them. We're still going to get sick. We're still going to age, and we'll eventually all die. But everybody does. That's nothing that's happening to me. So we keep going, and we understand that at the end of the road, is this understanding that leads to calm. So, that's who I was going to ask the question, but it's too personal to ask. And being a householder, there's also the aspect of being the householders. And there's an, doesn't mean that we have to do some kind of like Dhamma light, but we are yeah, exposed to, point. to the bosses of the world and the 
bids that you lose out on. And it just means it's even a little more difficult than someone who's absolutely separated himself from all that. To me, that's a, it, it, it's even a more daunting thing, but it's the same practice. And it's yeah. the same realizations when it arises and it will absolutely pass away. Yeah. So don't take it personal. Yeah. Thomas Martin, he was a uh, Franciscan monk and he left the world behind and did his own meditation practice. And when he finally got done with it, and he started talking about his experience, he said, meditation is great. He said, but if you can't take what you know out into the marketplace, what good is it? And this is the same way. You know, this, it, this practice is designed so that we can do it ourselves. We can develop a common, peaceful mind. But we're not leaving the world behind. We simply become a reference point to what's occurring. Rather than uh, rather than the pincushion, you know, or the eight-armed person just grasping after everything, yeah, we're pure, we're free, mm -hmm. because we're not entangled in the world. And it's not that we don't care. In fact, you'll all find, I think you've all found, that you care more deeply about things, but you just don't take it personal. And it, it's kind of an interesting transition, I guess, that transition period. Um, because there's still a little bit of clinging left, right? But now we can understand why you feel so good about this because you've diminished your clinging and craving quite a bit. Now you're just present for whatever it is, whether it's a bowl of cereal or your spouse or your kids. Or your boy, it's, all, it's all part of now a human life that's, that is experienced by an awakened, fully mature human being, which means you understand what it means to be a human being, finally. And you said something that's, you know, I really like what you said about what this, this is something they should be teaching kids. I agree, except we don't, you know, it's just, it's just that way. And um, that might seem like we should do something about it, but the only thing we can do, do about that is to take to the Dhamma and awaken and be an example for the world, including our own children. Thank you, Raquel, for you. Got us going in a good way. Um, I'm going to go to Julie, but then I want to hear if you could talk a little bit about how you integrate the Dhamma with this an incredibly, I don't know how you do it with your job. Really? But let's go to Julia first, and then we'll finish with our teachers. Hello, Julia. Good morning. Thank you for the teaching. Thanks, everyone, for the conversation. Um, I think the thing that's standing out to me most, but this is brought up a lot of really good thinking for me um was this idea that I think you were just touching on that as we deepen our practice and experience moments of awakening or you know just pursue this path that you actually feel more and care more but yeah. you're able to do that in a more peaceful way where you're not taking mm -hmm. it so personally mm -hmm. and I find that actually incredibly comforting because mm -hmm. I think it can be easy earlier in the practice to misinterpret this idea of calm and uh, sort of like stepping outside of the world yeah. and creating a like, a like more distance from life, but that's not actually yeah. what's happening. Yeah, you can and lean in more. Yeah, because more. it's less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you're not as easily entangled. Right. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. be more present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah the, the Buddha would often talk about the safety of practicing the Dhamma because, like, because the hunter can't throw us around anymore, do what he will with us. Mm -hmm. We are in control of our minds, mm -hmm. and now we're all, which means we're also in control of our lives. Yeah. So, again, it doesn't mean that we just spend the next years of our life just sitting on a cushion. Mm -hmm. We get out and do do whatever we're we're doing and whatever we want to do. Mm -hmm. you know, if we if we enjoy fishing, practicing the Dhamma doesn't mean you shouldn't go fishing. It just means if you don't catch a whopper, you don't take it seriously. You just enjoy your moment in life. Mm -hmm. And I said this before. When I mean, I'll say it this way: as you continue to develop the Dhamma to ever more subtle levels, each and every moment becomes precious. And, and quite sensitive to pleasure in that moment. Why? Because we're present for it. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't just get a piece of a piece of chocolate cake, and the next one is I got to have a whole chocolate cake. I sit and enjoy my chocolate cake and move on. Which is a very interesting example to choose <laughs> because that's one that I struggle with a lot. So, thank I do you. Too, but <laughs> Keith, who I well, I semi semi share a house with, he hardly ever stays there. For my birthday, bought me this beautiful chocolate cake, but the whole cake. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in a, a hyperglycemic <laughs> mode for for a couple of weeks. You can't practice the dhamma all the time. So. <laughs> I, yeah. I did. I practiced quasi restraint. I, I put it nice. out of eyesight. So it's yeah, I'm gonna try it. Thank you for this. Uh, John, I have to leave um, soon. So yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want to talk about how you marry the Dhamma in your work, or not, um, or your yeah, outer life. Yeah, it's really been a, a matter of uh, relaxation and and because um, I I do realize that I would take things very very personally. For a long time and that in my case would be mostly anxiety but mm -hmm. it's the same thing sure. <clears throat> um, and and then through jhana finally starting to understand my mind and, and stop trying to push it one way or the other um, you know and, and and enjoy it too you know i have i have a great mind and it does wonderful things uh <clears throat> i just need to be you know i i, I have to stop thinking that I'm the, I'm the greatest and and that i need to, and that i need to do it all the time you know um you are the greatest fixer. i was gonna say <laughs> you really are the greatest one no well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Oh, don't worry. Don't take it personally. Um, <laughs> squeeze his head out the door. <laughs> yeah. No, it's easy. Yeah, and, and just now, you know, uh, sitting here and we're, we're trying to get this picnic together and, 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 you know, I'm trying to extricate my head out of that one. Uh, and, and what just what happened last night was just a, a, another another good example of how you, you know, you know, how do you apply the Dharma here? You know, okay. I was getting into, you know, I was 
putting quite a bit of ROM into the whole process. And last night was you know, wake up call. Said, okay, now, now you can dial it back. Um, <clears throat> and and I'm still enjoying the process. I'm still here. I'm still, uh, you know, mind's still going, still, you know, trying to fix things, trying to, you know, come up with ways to, uh, to make something happen. And, <clears throat> and just now I realized um, I, I need to, uh, I need to step back from this. Uh, for, and, and then just in the practical thing, uh, whatever you guys want to decide about the picnic, it, oh, yeah, it's yeah. all good, you know. So uh, tell me what what you decide, and I'll I'll contribute whatever you whatever I can. Uh, and I can pick you up in case there's nobody. Else. Oh, good. I was, yeah, I was afraid to ask. No, I was going to ask. Yeah, thank you, Ron, um, for that. Yeah, then we can bring your scooter as well. But <clears throat> I can use the walker. No reason, you know. It's yeah. Unless you have like uh, a racetrack there, <laughs> no. three, three miles an hour. No, I mean, yeah, you know. So we can either do it at the uh, at the park or or not. Uh, at this point, there's no uh, too many practical obstacles to having it in my place. I would love to have. Well, it. yeah, I, I had this thought. If the difficulty at your house is no electricity, there's no electricity at Tennecton Park. Either. Yeah, but there's certain things I need to do with all the people there. First, I have no water either. Oh, okay. I have no toilets. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I so, lost power. You know. yeah. All right. Well, yeah, Bridget and I will discuss. Oh, we'll we'll help you. Thank you, Ron. All right. Thank, Thank you, Ron. Hello, James. Hi. Hi. Um, I think when the nature of the mind is to set a goal and go after that goal, um, and even when we're hearing certain pieces of information while we're learning the Dhamma, we hear things like, we need to abandon pleasure. We need to abandon clinging. We can immediately move into this space of clinging bad, not clinging good. So now my goal is to have no clinging in my mind, which is just another distraction. Now my goal is to have no pleasant feelings in my mind. That's another distraction. Yeah. You've moved past abandoning when you define the understanding as I now need to, or this means the goal is. Yeah. Um, so when you abandon pleasure, when you abandon clinging, why do we do that? We do that so we can understand clinging. And when we understand clinging, we stop attaching ourselves to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's not a choice. 
It's the natural outgrowth of understanding. So this sutta really, I think, I feel like underscores that understanding piece. Our goal is, if we need to have a goal, the goal is understanding yeah. when it comes to the Dhamma. So I don't need to not cling. I need to understand clinging. So then when I have, when I experience clinging, I'm not beating myself up over it. I'm just having this gentle kind of curious experience with it mm -hmm. uh, that allows me to understand, oh, I want my husband to quit smoking. I want him to quit smoking. I want him to go, oh, or, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because you want him to live forever. And, you know, that's probably not going to happen, but, you know, it's more likely. And so then it's just, it's softer. So like more mm -hmm. skillful life experience. That's, yeah. that's what, that's, that's the Dhamma stuff. It's not this, you know, absent, non-experiencing mm -hmm. mind. That's excellent. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, anytime that I do that with, my life, my job, my whatever. It's just a more calm, gentle movement through my life, moment by moment. Doesn't happen all the time, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Yeah. David, you have anything else for us? It's a good place to end, yeah. Okay, I think it is too. All right, does anybody else have any questions or comments before we go and practice jhana? I just one comment if I may. Please. Isn't it also, at least at the beginning, it can seem like a little depressing, for lack of a better word, that the impermanence of shouldn't cling to anything. If you look at uh, anybody or any situation in life, say this is this too shall pass, or, or, or this nothing's permanent. So then, why bother to, to do this, to do that? Because this is not going to last. Having a, uh, I know that maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, the main goal with this is to understand that you have to live the present um not i know we might be playing word games but it's not i mean it is to be present for this moment but that's really not the goal the goal is to understand why we're distracted away from this moment and every moment of our life you know most people live in the past and the future and they're right here right now uh, and that's a painful way to live because that's living in a fantasy right yesterday isn't here and tomorrow can never come Right here, right now is where my life is. We practice the Dhamma in the present moment. And it, it and the life reveals itself very differently when we're we're li living in right view or using the eightfold path as a limiting factor to this is just what's occurring. I don't need it to be any different than it is because I know it can't be. That doesn't mean and we learn the difference between approval and acceptance are two different things. I don't have to approve of something in order to accept it, but I accept it because it's what is occurring or has occurred. 
right? I mean, so many people lament the past. Oh, so terrible. Drag the past through their whole life. That's a horrible fantasy to carry around. Or it might be a fantasy about who you should be in the next moment or the next couple of years, rather than just be present for what's occurring and make decisions that are now much more rational and rooted in reality than they would otherwise be. Um, one of the things that occurs as we start accepting that this is the moment that I'm alive, this moment right here. And so I should be present for it. I need concentration to do that and uh, a, a view of understanding. And it, it eliminates all fear of the future. It eliminates all self-identifying with the past. You know, many people carry the past with them and are kind of like constantly complaining about <clears throat> this and that. And blah, blah, blah. Well, you're stuck in the past, right here, right now. I mean, I, uh, right here, right now, I'm not 25 anymore, but I don't have any regrets. I was, you know, I had a pretty good time when I was 25 and 30 and 40. And now that I just turned 68, life is more wonderful today than it's ever been. And yet I got this kind of busted up body, but so what? I'm present for this moment. For some reason, for the last few classes, I've just had this overwhelming feeling of how fortunate I am to be a part of your sangha. And you know, I, I, it sounds crazy maybe, but that's how I feel. And to meditate with you all, each and every class, it's, you said it, it's an honor. It's truly an honor for me, you know? And it, it's, it's just that way. It's wonderful to be present in this moment, moving through life with certain goals, but not being stuck in it, not creating identities. You know, just being here, doing the best I can. So you, you brought up a really good question and topic, so but everybody did. You know, we're all we're all getting it. You know, your question will be answered. Like what? Why is it worth it then? Yeah. Everything's gonna end if everything if it's not worth it. Well, come to the sangha and sit and listen and deepen your understanding your jhana meditation and you'll answer that question you'll, yeah. you'll then hear what john said is and what julia said you don't get to lean into that moment and not have that moment need to be anything different than what it is yeah so you'll answer your question and you'll take that kind of despondent you know question and turn around to what else can you do except to lean into that moment yeah. you have this understanding of impermanence. Yeah, when you fully grasp impermanence, it it makes this life much more precious. And since we know, since I know, you know, I I got forty years at best left here. <laughs> Sometime at at some point in my life, it's going to end. We get a breath in the beginning with one thought. We get a breath and one thought at the end. In between that is up to me. And so I want to be present for whatever time I have, whether I'm a 25-year-old kid again or a 68-year-old man. It's it, this Being present for this moment in life is its own reward. Does everybody understand that? Because I don't need anything to be different in this moment because I know it can't be. Everybody understand that last statement? 
how could anything be different if it's already this way? So why lose in, uh, mental processes, mental time on stuff that's already occurred? I want to be present for right here, right now, not what happened yesterday, you know, or other things. Based on yesterday, can you try to improve today? I'm sorry. Based on, on, on yesterday, can you try to improve today? Uh, is it, or, or is it also clean? Yeah, I, I, I can't. It's too hard of an answer because in your mind it might not be. It might be just a, a reference backwards, which is okay. You know, you might remember, oh, yesterday I forgot to meditate twice. So I think that's okay as long as you don't beat yourself up. But again, what's important is to practice the Dhamma in this moment using the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path. And along the way, we're gonna there's going to be stumbles, right? It's not a... Um, it's not a path based on faith it's just because we join this path and join the Sangha that that's all we have to do. No, we, we, we join this Sangha so we learn what this incredible man taught 2,600 years ago that works just as well and it's just as relevant today as it was back then. Here we are. Thanks, Raquel. Thank you. Anybody else will, before we finish with Meta? Okay. I just did, I usually, you know, I'm mindful that uh, an hour and a half is long enough class, and we went a little bit beyond, but that's not a regular practice here. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath, and let that <clears throat> mindfulness unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddhist words on metta describing an awakened human being from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with their duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, <clears throat> whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depth, outwards and unbounded free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.